Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFleets.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Jake Blakeson. Welcome to the show. Hello. Pleasure to be here. Indeed. Um, readers of the website and listeners to the podcast will perhaps know you for one of BritFlix's favourites, uh, Disappearance Valley's Creed, uh, more uh-huh. recently Fifth Wave, the, uh, the big adaptation film. But now you've got a new film called I Care A Lot, which is... Um, before you tell us what it is, I'll give you my reaction watching it. Quite possibly one of the most morally bankrupt films I've ever seen in mm-hmm. a long time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean that in the best possible way I can compliment you for what you've created. Yeah. I mean, it's. Uh, I think it's about morally bankrupt people, um, but they're still people, you know, and I think these are the kind of people that are all around us, you know, who are quite who are in power, who are making money, who are, you know, sort of finding loopholes in the system and sort of, you know, controlling our lives and the lives of people around us and controlling the lives of people who are very vulnerable, you know. So it's uh, hopefully you come out of it with a sort of an anger at this kind of person that kind of mirrors the sort of the anger and frustration I feel about these kind of people in the world right now. No, 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 no. Before we'll go into detail about about how you come up to create these, these wonderful characters and this mm. amazing story, but... Um, just for the, I mean, p- people can watch it on Prime Video in the UK, um, mm-hmm. which is how I saw it. Um, and uh, if you could just give us a brief synopsis as to what I Care A Lot is, and then we'll crack on. Well, it, I Care A Lot is uh, the story of Marla Grayson, played by Rosamund Pike, who is um, a legal guardian. So she, she uh, takes care of people who are no longer able to take care of themselves. The state is set in America, and the, the, the state sort of steps in when people can't take care of themselves and give guardians sort of power over these people who uh, no longer can take care of themselves. But Marla is quite predatory, so she sort of games the system to take care of people who maybe don't need that much help. And also she then sort of sells their home, sells their cars, strips their assets, uh, puts them in an old people's home, puts them in care. And she's sort of got a system worked out with the doctors and the judges, which is all, all legal, but it sort of preys on the vulnerable for money. Um, but in the film, she targets a woman that she believes to be almost like the perfect, the perfect uh, ward for her, played by Diane Weist. Uh, and so she goes about getting her into care home and seizing her assets. But uh, pretty soon we realise that 
you know, the character played by Diane isn't quite the perfect target and things start spiralling out of control from there, really. Indeed, indeed. Now, we'll, we'll, I'll do my utmost to avoid any spoilers, but, uh, but maybe the last five minutes I'll, I'll, make a bigger, I'll make a big point of pointing out that we'll, we'll maybe enter a little bit of spoiler territory at the end. Sure. <clears throat> so, first of all, like I say, um, my reaction was to, to your film was, was, was amazingly visceral. I was, I was arguably fuming mm-hmm. beyond all. Me and my wife watched it together, and the pair of us were kind of constantly looking at each other as and like we're talking, we're only ten minutes in. We're going what? They doing what? So, for you as a writer of this, I mean, how did you first hear about the notion of legal guardianship in the USA, and how long did it take you to realise there's a film in them there hills? Well, I mean, I I just sort of saw news stories as you do every day. You see news stories about horrifying things, especially in the last few years. There's just like another horrifying thing, and I I heard about it, and I sort of half heard about it, and I thought, surely that's not right. Surely that. Surely I've got the wrong end of the, this story. Uh, I'm sort of assuming it's the worst. And then I uh, sort of Googled it, basically, and looked into it and found all of these news stories about these people who'd been essentially kidnapped and, and robbed. Um, and there's thousands of them in America every year. There's like thousands of people this happens to. Um, and I was horrified. And I just thought, wow, you know, I've never heard of this. And, I, and, I, and it's having that reaction on me. I'm having sort of like a, what? Really? This happens? Uh, this is horrifying. And it kind of felt like, the trial by Kafka, you know, and the trial by Kafka is arrested for a crime. He doesn't, they won't tell him what it is. They just turn up at his door and take him away. And I felt like that, that's, you know, that's sort of like everybody's fear, right? That the law has, they find themselves for some reason on the wrong end of the law. People, you know, that's sort of things that happen in dreams a lot that you sort of get taken away and they don't tell you why. Um, and it just felt really sort of nightmarish, but really sort of resonant for right now of, you know, various people who are vulnerable being preyed on by, you know, people who want to make money out of them or people who want to get political gain out of them. And so it felt like a really rich territory. And the first instinct is to sort of tell the victim story, you know, because that's the, that's the way I was hooked in. I was reading, you know, accounts by people who had done this to them. Um, but that felt like that. if you made that film, it would almost be kind of too hard to watch. It would just be so, you know, it would be so infuriating. It would be so horrible that you could almost not watch it. You'd have to look away or you'd have to sort of, sort of pull back from it because you would find yourself just not wanting to engage. It's almost like looking, looking directly at the sun or something. It's like you can't see it because you're blinded by it. Uh, but also that kind of film would only be sort of really preaching to the choir, I think, that people who would, who are, who would seek that film out were or the kind of people who would already be, you know, be determined to be upset by something like this and want to kind of know more about it, whereas I wanted to kind of like, you know, package it in a film that people would watch anyway. So, um, so the idea of like that, that sort of horrifying story kind of like embedded in my brain and just sort of stayed there for a bit. It wasn't like a Eureka moment. It was just like one of the other things that I was interested in at the time, but I kept on thinking about it. You know, when I woke up at two o'clock in the morning, I was like, oh, can't stop thinking about that idea. So, you know, I had another idea that I was also sort of toying with, which is about sort of like a, ri- a rise of an ambitious woman sort of story. Cause I really like ambition stories, like the sort of ones where the ambition is sort of benevolent, like, I guess like Rocky or something. Or the pursuit of happiness, or or even when the the ambition is more malevolent, like Goodfellas or The Wolf of Wall Street. Um, and I'd really enjoyed films like you know I Tonya, and uh, so I thought like putting those two stories together and taking a bit more of a satirical view of the subject. Well, not satirical of the subject, but, but putting that sort of horrifying subject in the middle of a satire in the same way as something like The Big Short did recently, or um, or Doctor Strangelove is sort of the granddaddy of those those films, where you take something serious and horrifying, but you sort of you dance around it with humor to, just, just to show like how absurd and horrifying and, and ridiculous it really is. Um, and then sort of like do a pitch black tone. So 
people get it and people are sort of like rocked off their axis and feel a bit queasy about it and don't know whether they should be rooting for these people or not because you know it's um we're so used to watching films where we're meant to root for the the kind of person in the middle of the, the frame you know the person who's attractive and who's got the soundtrack pumping when they're doing things and so the, the film sort of framed like it kind of saying hey look at this fun thing she's doing but at the same time she's showing you a horrible thing and we we very much say it's a horrible thing i think in the film uh, but it's you know you're sort of you're the film is sort of working against the way it normally would want you to feel and that's sort of a bit dizzying you know and so no for sure for yeah. sure the thing that the yeah. film that struck me that sprung to mind among the the ones you've mentioned is uh, Dan Gilroy's Nightcrawler in the sense mm. of um but in in the sense that in Nightcrawler you're seeing you're seeing the creation of the monster whereas you yeah. you throw us you throw the monster at the start and go Here's 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 the broken American dream here right now. Watch what happens next. Yeah, and I thought I that mean, was I particularly think, exciting. Oh yeah, I mean I, I love Nightcrawler, but he's like if you met him at a party, you'd think he's a bit strange and maybe dangerous, you know. Whereas if you met Marla Grayson at a party, you'd think oh she's really fun and attractive and she's got a great, you know, she's got great clothes and she have her she has a really good loving relationship. And what do you do for a living? Oh, you take care of the elderly. Oh wow, you're great. Whereas you wouldn't feel like that of is it Lewis Bloom who's in. Uh, Nightcrawler, and it's like, you wouldn't feel that for him, I think. You'd feel like, this guy's, I, I'm stuck in the kitchen with this guy. You know what I mean? And you kind of maybe want to get away from him. Um, but I'm, I was sort of interested in not telling the backstory because when you, when you meet these people in real life, you know, they are very well put together and they're in control of what they do and they feel very confident and trustworthy. And, you know, they're, you know, they're smart and you feel like, you know, you could, you know, be friends with them. Uh, but really what they're doing is terrible. And, you know, that, and so it was interesting to me that, there's this person who could be, you know, in an airy office in the next unit to yours in an office building, uh, who's doing this terrible thing, but it's just under the guise of like a successful businesswoman. Uh, and, you know, seeing that kind of monster, not at night, not sort of feeling weird, not sort of, you know, obsessed with blood. And she doesn't, you know, he, he kind of changes crime scenes, right? So he's- Oh yeah, no, he, he's, 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 he's is a very you know? macabre life he ends up leading, whereas there's yeah. nothing about Marla Beyond yeah. the, the the overall goal that she's trying to reach, which is her. Go I mean, as far as I, as, I mean, it'd be, it'd be, it's crude to summarize it, but it's almost like just to be rich and powerful, and she doesn't care how she gets there. The route getting there doesn't bother her as long as the outcome is rich and powerful. No, exactly, and um, but she cares for the people around her. So for the people in her immediate circle, she cares for them very much. You know, like Fran, and like probably she's probably a great boss to the people she works with. But, you know, anybody beyond that circle, uh, fair game, you know, and the same for the same for Peter's character, you know, that he cares, for, you know, you see him, you know, being quite upset about people he, he loves, but then he's, you know, smuggling these poor <laughs> drug mules through through customs, you know what I mean? Some of them are dying. So it's like he's he but he's breaking the law, whereas she's not the law. The law's on her side, literally on her side, because... I mean, the that's that. I mean, that was... I think you, you covered it really well without without sort of going, and here's the exposition moment, because I felt like the notion that here's the state using a sledgehammer to crack a nut, because the problem that these laws are trying to solve is predatory family members keeping somebody vulnerable out of the care system mm -hmm. so that they can protect their assets. Almost like, I mean, the, I think one of the accusations is... Uh, you know, people starve their parents so they don't eat into their inheritance, literally. Hmm. And so you can see the logic behind legal guardianship, but when you have this relationship, which is not really a public service, because obviously Marla is a private 
incorporated company who does it for profit, not because yeah. she cares, in inverted commas. And I think this is where, you know, <laughs> state intervention is often can become just a sledgehammer to crack a nut. Well, the state intervention over there means that you're you're intervening to take away from family member and then outsourcing to a to a private company that is run for its shareholders, right? So, you know, over here we currently have the NHS. I mean, you might be being chiselled away at, but there's a lot of private companies making a lot of money out of uh, the pro- the situation right now and not doing a very good job of it. And it's very similar to what this is, which is outsourcing, you know, a, a vulnerability of the public to people who want to run it for money. And so, the, so you know. There's a lot of people, you know, it's very much like the speech in The Third Man where he's, sort of wa- he's watering down the drugs, right, Orson Welles, and he just sort of stands on top of that big wheel and says, look at those, see those ants down there talking about the people on the floor and on the ground saying, you know, how, how many of those would you just, you know, make stop moving for a million, for a million dollars, you know? And that for him, it's just like, it doesn't matter. They're not people I know. People are going to die anyway. This, somebody's going to be this person's carer anyway so marla just thinks like well it may as well be me because somebody's gonna make money out of it and the american dream tells me if i work hard and i find my niche and i play it smart then i i'll get success and money and you go you know the power in politics is lobbying or it's knowing the right people and you can change the laws to you know to help you if you've got money the people who can't change the laws are the people who you know don't have any money and the vulnerable people in the middle of it of course you know, you don't want people to, you know, be vulnerable and have to men- really serious dementia and be in their homes and not take care of themselves. But you sh- there should be a way of doing that without kind of incentivizing people making a profit. No, right? sure, sure. Now, at the centre, <laughs> at the centre of your film is uh, playing Marla is Rosamund Pike, and it is an it is an absolute tour de force in in cool, calm, collective brackets, very evil. Uh, hmm. In terms of overall what she's doing, uh, what was your conversations like with with Rosamond in terms of direction and 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 in a sense, what what did Rosamond bring to the character that you couldn't have imagined on the page? That when she started to do it, you're like, "There's Marla, my word." Yeah, I mean, uh, Rosamond sort of got it from the start. She uh, she read the script and really just really understood the kind of character I wanted to be, and she didn't care that she wasn't likable and i think there's a lot, a lot of the time when you're trying to cast there's a nervousness that you'll send it to to actors who like they're, they're you know their entire income and their success depends on their sort of uh, their you know relationship with the public you know what the public thinks of them and whether they want to go see them so they're very you know a lot of them can be and a lot of their teams rather than them a lot of their teams like their uh publicists and their agents can be very careful about not wanting to make them too much of an evil character i mean sort of famously after Anthony Perkins did Psycho, he found it very hard to get work because, as a leading man because people just thought of him as the guy from Psycho, you know? So I think there's a, people are kind of can be careful about that. And Rosamond just, was just fascinated by the character. She didn't care. She wanted to absolutely not show any equivocation in, in Marla of like any sort of moments where she felt like, is this the right thing to do? And there was a couple of moments that I'd written in like that just in case we needed them in the edit. And then then Rosamond just sort of didn't really do them. And I never really asked her to do them because it just felt right that Marla wouldn't show this sort of chink in her armor. Because if she, if she actually thinks to herself, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing and still keeps on doing it, she's even worse than if she just thinks, here we go, this is fair game, this is just business. You know, business is business. Um, so, but before we started shooting, um, we, we shot in Boston, but before we started shooting, both Rosamond and I were in London, we're both living in London. And so she would come over and we'd watch movies which have similar sort of uh, ambitious, borderline unlikable, terrible kind of characters. Uh, and just to see how far you can push um, 
an audience before it just becomes not watchable, you know, that you just sort of get so turned off. You're like, I, I can't, I can't do any, I can't do this anymore. You know, they're so hateful and you have to, there has to be sort of like a fun, seductive quality, like, like DiCaprio in um, Wolf of Wall Street or like Kidman in To Die For. They sort of really straddle that line where you think, God, you're awful, but I'm having fun while you're being awful. But then when you finish it, you think, God, they were awful. You know, I mean, and so there was, there was that line and we really sort of like talked about that all the way through shooting. Um, but for me, the, the bit that, you know, there was, there was two scenes where she really, she really got it. Early on, we shot the scene with Chris Messina. It was like our first week. Chris Messina came in as the lawyer and we had that long scene in her office where he comes in and sort of threatens her. Um, and the way that she just kind of wasn't scared of him, was playing with him and was enjoying herself. You know what I mean? She saw she wasn't scared of this, this guy who was coming and threatening her. She sort of saw it as opportunity. And that sort of like the little glint in her eye of like, oh, I'm onto something. This is a good one, you know? I've got, this might be, this might be my, uh, my gold nugget that I found, you know, the diamond I found in the coal here. So he, uh, so that moment, and then. Well, I was going to say that, that moment alone, I thought that scene alone was an absolute masterclass. It was, it was two actors having just an absolute ball for starters. And, and the kind of, the idea of two people with power, not showing a hand and not backing down but it never feeling like they were really going head to head. Both of them thought they were they were the one in front. It was a brilliant yeah. scene. <laughs> yeah, and Chris was great, you know, because Chris had Chris showed up that day. We, I talked to him on Skype. He showed up and he had a lot of lines, so he was like, word perfect on the lines, and he did them, you know, he did them quick. He did got the rhythm really, really great, and like he just he had a lot of ideas about like his look as well. So he'd been sort of talking to us about his his wardrobe, which is fantastic. Um, and he comes in and he just immediately, you know, Marla kind of gets that he's expensive, but he's vain and he's clearly underestimating her, you know, and looking down his nose at this sort of high street businesswoman who he can just walk all over and just doesn't realize kind of like he's walking into the, sort of the lion's den really. Uh, but, but, you know, he, you know, he just doesn't know what to do because he's got, he's offered money, he's offered threats and she's not taken either of them and he just runs out of ammunition. And so all he has, like most of the other, you know, men she runs into, all she all he has is sort of to be a little bit mean to her and threaten her with like violence, you know. And she's just like, you know, don't, don't I don't care what you're saying to me, you know. And so she she retains the power in the whole thing. And that was such a fun scene to shoot, you know, because you write it on the page and you think, is this all right? Is this too long? I don't know. It seems seems to play quite quite well. And then you get those two actors, and you know, we we did, you know, they're all ten minute takes, and we did it over and over and over again. We spent a whole day doing it, so. But even by the end of the day, I mean, most of the crew was still like hanging about watching the monitors because it was just such a fun thing. But to it, watch but it really life. cements who Marla is as a character because up until that point, you kind of you can buy into the idea that she's she's got evil intent and everything. But actually, there's a resilience and a relentlessness that's revealed here that is, no, I'm going to win. I'm not just going to be yeah. successful. I'm going to win. And this is yeah, that's that's there. And there's also a moment where she just you know she see. He sees through her scam immediately. Um, she's not kind of shaken by that at all. And then, you know, she may, you know, and she knows he's lying immediately and he's not shaken by that. So it's two people who are openly lying to each other, knowing they're lying to each other, and knowing the other one's lying to them. And then at some point it comes the thing of where the, you know, the cards get put on the table and she just says, you know, says, okay, yeah, sure, but I'm not, I'm not going to give you what you want, <laughs> you know, and it's, uh, that's really fun to see. Hence, you know, normally the threatening scene is like somebody trying their best to sort of keep it together, but scared and then running for help afterwards. And she was just like, oh, no, this is, you know, she sees every 
every danger is a way to climb the ladder. So, you know, like there's a moment later with um, Peter Dinklage's character where she's in danger, you know, she's in perhaps mortal danger, but she just sees it as like, you know, a bit like, you know, Dragon's Den, you know, over here, Shark Tank in America, you know, where she sees it as a way, like her elevator pitch moments, like here's a supremely rich man who can maybe help me get to the next level, or I might end up dead, but, you know, I'm, this is my chance, so I'm going to take my chance. And there's something very, you know, American dream, or even like aspiring filmmaker about that. It's like, oh, I'm in, a, I'm in an elevator with the head of a studio. I'm going to tell them my story. You know what I mean? And that's kind of what she's doing, but pitching her, you know, pitching her deal to him. And, uh, you know, that, that those two scenes really cemented it for me that, you know, the look in Rosamond's eye, which is not sort of, that's where you see who she really is. You see the eagerness for the money and the eagerness for success. And there's no, there's no sort of fear behind it. You know? I realise I'm not a risk taper when I watch to do that. I realise I'm just not one. It's like it felt so real. It felt like a very real portrayal of a risk taker. And I mean, a bit like you said with uh, what's it called? DiCaprio in Wall Street, where mm. knowing what you're doing is wrong is irrelevant. Knowing you can have a good outcome is what drives you. And so yeah. that's the that's the thing. the 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 idea that you'll always be successful is is all, is borderline sociopathic in many senses, which is why I guess a lot of powerful people tend to be that trait. Uh, the unlikable female character, and I say female because that's I think that's an important part. One of the discussions, uh, certainly divisive discussions, I've seen in social media is is um is about the idea of the unlikable female character and and i think i think you know if, if you go back and watch you know your you, you film noir history the, the the unlikable female tends to be the, the kind of femme fatale who is essentially doing bad because there's a badder man for her to correct in a way or a or a badder man for her to exploit this kind of a quip pro quo in terms of what's going on whereas with Marla, there is no quid pro quo. She's just doing something which is, you know, just just bad, and mm. and I think we're used to watching that trope in men. I mean, you mentioned Goodfellas already, and we we kind of follow it in a kind of like vicarious, interested way. But it seems it seems interesting that one of the most challenging things that I'm 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 here, and again, I'm only it's only anecdotal. I'm not, I've got no evidence of this beyond a few film Twitter accounts and stuff, but. It seems that people struggle with the idea of a woman doing that. Like, mm. yeah, and but I mean, I'm not, and also, I'm not asking you to root for her. You know what I mean? I think when you watch Goodfellas, and when you watch, you know, maybe like a Tarantino film, like you know, Pulp Fiction, or you watch, um, you know, like The Godfather. You know, you're you're as a viewer, you're asked to sort of like identify with these men who are doing terrible, terrible things. They're they're breaking the and they're killing people, and they're doing it for power. I mean, they say they're doing it for family, but they're really they're not, and you and you do sort of, kind of, you're meant to sort of like understand their story of how they got there and sort of empathize with it and sort of see, oh, this is sort of the flip side of the American dream. And for me, with with Marla, it's like I'm not asking you to root for her; I'm just sort of showing you as as she is, you know. And that, and there's a lot of people who operate like that. And for me, that you know, the difference between her and a femme fatale is a femme fatale. Well. Lots of differences, but the main thing about femme fatale is femme fatale uses their sexuality to kind of get what they want. Uh, whereas Marla does not at all. She just uses like her, her 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 brains and her ambition and her fearlessness. She doesn't use her sexuality to to play men. She uses she outsmarts men, and I think that maybe makes people feel a little more uncomfortable because it's something that's not quite familiar. Um, and we're used to rooting for successful people who are fearless in films. And so you show somebody who's successful and fearless, and also as a, a woman who we're meant to sort of feel for in films, just sort of coded. It's like, you know, they're a bit less, you know, powerful in the film normally. So they're sort of, they're normally the person who gets kidnapped. So the, 
the hero can prove they're heroic, you know, whereas Marla's not having any of that, you know, she's got not going to lean on anybody else to rescue her if she gets kidnapped. She gets kidnapped, she gets out of it, you know? So I feel that, you know, it's interesting how people are, are sort of reacting reacting to it. And it's I think I think it's because people are they see her and expect that I'm <laughs> wanting them to root for her and root for her success, which I'm absolutely not. But I'm framing her in a way in a narrative that normally you are meant to root for people like that. But the people you root for in other movies are terrible. But I know? think it's a, almost like a childlike response to think that a film's got to make you feel good. You know, that idea of me me investing in a character is the idea of I'm somehow going to feel better from having done it. Whereas mm. not all stories, and of you, I mean, you think of, you know, umpteen horror films that you could list, you know, your Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, Man Bites Dog. You know, these films mm. took dark subject matters and asked you to go into go into the world with a dark person. So it's not unusual. It's I just found that a lot of a lot of the subtext to what people were trying to get angry about was essentially them not saying, if it had been a bloke, I'd have not batted an eyelid. Yeah. But because it's a female character doing this and she's doing it well, and I feel like it's because one thing I I I was I charted the film and I was like, from the from the opening scene on the steps of the court to the snippets on CNN or whatever news channel she's on towards the end. It's like you kind of you kind of feel like it's the same characters. You just got more and more emboldened and more and more um, uh, what do you call it um, vindicated in what she's doing. In a sense, it doesn't. Mm. It never felt like there was like a, a a leap in one direction and then suddenly a leap in another because the sort of story needed it. It was her character was true from start to finish. In my, to my mind, in terms of look and feel of the film. Um, Doug Emmett is your cinematographer, and yeah. and as a description of it, um, I was thinking it was like the film feels like it's like candy coloured, like sunshine, which is obviously <laughs> very different from the disposition of the character, but obviously contradicted with the sterile corporate world and healthcare world that I care a lot is situated in. What what mm. were your discussions with Doug about that look and that kind of? I guess outside and inside world, isn't it? Like, I guess that out, that, that sunshine world is the fact that Diane West character, Jennifer Peterson, isn't allowed out and neither anybody else, whereas obviously people who are legal guardians like Marla get to run around in the sunshine. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, there's lots of reasons. I mean, one is like, I really like use of colour. So the use of colour, yeah. I really wanted to use colour and bold colour. I like films that use bold colour. And, and because this is sort of like a, a crime film, there's a, there's a version of this that could be very everybody in black suits with sort of like noirish offices and sort of lots of almost like smoky rooms with dark wood scheming yeah but i thought that that it feels more uncomfortable to see her with like a bright airy colorful kind of uh attractive world you know it's the world that we live in it's not it's not over there kind of yeah. like in the shadows it's, it's wide open people are doing this in the wide open they're not hiding as they're doing we've it. waited doing in that it. reception haven't we <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like they're waiting. She's she's in a, she's in a bright red dress doing this. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, it's not yeah. like she's hiding away. Um, and so some of it was that, but it was it, I mean, it was conversations with Doug and with Michael Gracefield, who's the production designer, and with Deb Newell, who was the costume designer. Who, and together we sort of took, we had meetings about who was going to be in charge of color in the scene, whether it's going to be the costume or whether it's going to be the background or whether it's going to be a, a film, you know, like a a gel on, on a light in the background. Mm. Um, and I really love Doug's work from Sorry to Bother You, which he, I love the way he used colour in that. And, yeah. And contrast. And I really wanted to go for sort of like um, filmic, almost like early 90s um, kind of filmic American independent film look, that sort of high contrast, sunny, bright, 
Because what I loved about Tarantino's like uh, you know '90s films like Pulp Fiction is they're very sunny when all this terrible things happening. They're yeah. colourful and punchy in a way that really disarms you, and it kind of feels like they're they're pulpy, and you're like you should be enjoying this, but the things they're doing are terrible. And and all these pop culture references do that as well, and comic book stuff, which is not not my world. But I think the, sort of the rhythm of my dialogue does sort of a similar thing, which is it puts you at sort of like a slightly heightened level where we're hopefully showing you that like this is absurd. This is an absurd world. Do you think, in a way, I never thought of it this way till you said it, described it like that. But you know, in the way that traditional film noir was all, was about the extreme blacks and extreme whites, which was obviously to do with the fact that a lot of it was shot in black and white. Mm. Do you think then, in the same way, your film being a, I mean, I don't think it's unfair to describe it as a neo noir film, mm. that idea of accentuating the colours and the brightness of the world against the darkness of the story, is doing a similar job. I mean, I think so. I think you you just want it to feel kind of visually striking and mm. want to do stuff with the framing and the street the screen i think film noir does this good film noir does this well certainly greg toland shot film noir does this where the image itself is sort of telling you something and making you feel something sort mm. of in uh in a in a kind of you know i won't go into sort of <laughs> kind of film theory stuff but in a in a way that really uh you emo- you feel emotions while having certain things so no you know, no it was it was on purpose it wasn't just the, the the medium was it it was on purpose what they were doing with the blacks and the whites Oh yeah, for sure. And but it's also a great way of like doing something something that looks looks striking with no money. You know, mm. if you put everything in shadow, you don't have to put a set there. You know, it's just done in shadow. Um, and if you, you know, if you have a sort of a, a more empty set, you can put somebody in a bright color, and you look at the bright color. And I mean, Goddard did that in his films of the '60s. You know, a lot of those rooms that the characters are in are really quite bare, but the bright blues and the bright reds and the bright yellows pop out. Mm. Um, and Tarantino did that in Jackie Brown. It's like paint, paint a wall bright green and put somebody in a blue flight, you know, uh, stewardess uniform. And it suddenly feels like, uh, you know, it's it's a movie rather than just a slice of life. And, you know, I'm not that interested in realism in sort of the mise-en-scene. I'm more, I'm interested in realism in in the way people behave and be, making people humans, gr- you know, sort of grubby, grey, airy humans rather than sort of monsters and heroes. Yeah. Um, and everybody sort of lives in that sort of grey, grubby area. Um, one one of my favourite think- shots, I won't give the context, but if I tell you what it, what, it, what it included, I think you'll know which one I mean, was just the pull-up on a pair of shoes resting on a bed. Mm. Yeah. And you knew it was Marla because yeah. of who's in yeah, the background. Yeah, we talked about that thing, like when the, you know, in Jaws, when the sort of fin comes out of the water, you know what I mean? <laughs> the, you sort of, you, you, oh, really? You emotional reaction very quickly, you know. Mm. <laughs> um, but that was great. Yeah, I mean, that was sort of that wasn't really planned. You know, we got to that room and uh, Deb Deb had got those shoes in that day. She goes, you know, do you like these shoes? And I was like, those shoes are great. You know, and so it's like let's let's put those shoes front and center. And there's nothing more sort of like kind of uh, disrespectful when somebody somebody's in, in the the other person's position to be having your having your feet up and leaning back with yeah. your feet up. You know, so um, I think you know we, we're always looking for a way to be playful and. Uh, and using sort of the language of cinema to sort of wrongful or disarm you with and sort of keep keep a hold of the tone because the tone goes from you know horrifying to sort of quite absurd and you know there's some guys in it who are quite dumb there's some some there's three guys who go to a care facility with a mission and that mm. whole scene is you know it's it's not meant to be a serious scene it's meant to be an enjoyable scene but it's also at the same time doing a lot sort of you know there's there's a there's a security guard that shoots very 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 quickly mm. you know which says, you know, which happens quite a lot in uh, in America. You know, people have a gun and like to use them, you know. So there's, you know, even even within all the sort of like playfulness, there's meant to be this sort of 
bittersweet sort of acidic sort of line running through it. Mm. Now, I know I said I'd uh, I maybe announced to be spoilers, but I don't want to, I don't think I need to for this conversation. I think we've covered quite a lot of ground without needing to. So we'll keep it spoiler free. Uh, one last, one last question. Um, uh, Diane West as Jennifer Peterson, again, in, in, in the same way that you had the scene with Marla and Dean um, in the office, there's a, there's a couple of absolute masterclasses in, in sort of, character and and that idea of no one backing down but made even mm. better by the fact that diane west is obviously drugged up to the eyeballs because she's in the care home while still being resilient it is and and to watch marla not get what she wants is as good as anything marla does when she gets what she wants that's a scene that people really enjoy because they they're looking for somebody to go toe-to-toe with her um, i raised my fist you- to my wife going yeah go on go on jennifer <laughs> and you know you've got two, you've got two time Academy Award winner Diane Weiss there, right? So like she, she can bring her A game, and she because she, you know, at the beginning she seems quite soft and she's resilient, but she's quite you know soft and a bit scared. And as we know, you know, Diane's voice she's quite softly spoken, and yeah. she's you know she's sort of diminutive. And we know her from these roles where she's playing mothers in Edward Scissorhands and The Lost Boys and things like that, where she seems quite kind of trustworthy. And, yeah, she's she's um, she's all she's Mrs. All America Apple Pines in a lot of films. Yeah. So to get her to play that scene, and especially at the end of that scene, yeah. and have her sort of like with, a cr- with crazy hair, and it kind of gave her a freedom, I think, that because she was acting drugged up, that she could just do what, she just played whatever came into her head a lot of the time. And so, you know, it was great. We had some great outtakes of then, where she was going like way off script. Um, <laughs> but it was really great, you know, it's really great, because like that put, you know, Rosamond wasn't quite expecting half the stuff that Diane was saying. So a lot of Rosamond's reactions in that are like, are we, are we going to get back to the script? No, I think, you know, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. Diane played that. So well in that that moment, and I think that does that does sort of shift the tenor, and you, it shows that there is a weakness in Marla, and a weakness is not getting what she wants because she's so driven to get it that if there's a, an obstacle there that seems unsurmountable, she's she's sort of out of her comfort zone, which I think helps helps up for the rest of the, the rest of the film, where you know putting you at off ease of like what what might happen next. Well, look, I didn't think it was possible to have a, a chat about your film without spoilers, but I think we've managed it. So I'll just say <laughs> thank you very much for giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Good morning, Miss Peterson. I'm sorry to disturb you so early. The court has ruled that you require assistance in taking care of yourself. <laughs> I'm fine. I'm afraid it's not up to you to decide. The court has appointed me to be your legal guardian. What? You have to come with me. And remember, I'm here to help. My name is Marla Grayson. I'm just someone who cares. Marla Grayson, you've had amazing success. What's your secret? There is no secret, Peter. She forces them into the home, auctions off their house, and uses the proceeds to pay herself. Because caring is my job. I will grab your dick and balls. And I will rip and clean off. Big deal maker. I know what you do here. Your hustle. Look at all these cash cows on your wall just leaking money into your account. But Jennifer Peterson, she's off limits. She has very powerful friends who can make life uncomfortable for you. How uncomfortable are we talking? I don't like you. You only just met me. There's two types of people in this world. 
predators and prey. I don't lose. I won't lose. I'm never letting you go. Oh, you're in trouble now. I am a fucking lioness. People ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Oh, yeah. 